Jeff Sands is the founding partner of Dorset Partners, a firm that specializes in turnarounds, debt restructuring, and distressed sales, as well as the author of the highly regarded book, Corporate Turnaround Artistry, Fix Any Business in 100 Days. He's an expert at fixing struggling businesses and guiding entrepreneurs through the murky waters of insolvency, and he's experienced some truly wild stories from the trenches that we're excited to hear today. Jeff, welcome to the Circle of Confidence podcast, and thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Victor. Appreciate you guys having me. Definitely. Um, well, Jeff, like I said, I um, before the call, I really loved your book, and your book is kind of famous. I'm not sure if you knew this, but it's kind of famous in this SMB Twitter sphere. Um, so glad, think, glad to hear it. Yeah. So I think some people will be familiar with the work um, and, and your background, but for those who aren't, would love to hear just a little bit about your background, your initial turnaround experience, and what led you to this very interesting uh, line of work in the first place. Okay, happy to. And, and the book is really a look back and almost, uh, you know, written to myself, whatever it is, like 15, 20 years later, um, after getting my ass kicked and learning a bit along the way. Um, like a lot of y'all, you know, I've got an economics degree and an MBA. Um, I learned everything they taught me in school, which was pretty much that businesses go up and to the right. And every once in a while, there's a small bump in the road, but that's about it. Um, I grew up in an entrepreneurial family and I had seen more ups and downs than they lead you to believe, you know, through popular media. But, um, I, you know, I, I guess you still always think it's a bit up and to the right. And um, so my first turnaround, oh, so I guess background, I grew up in uh, Mandeville, Louisiana, outside New Orleans, um, went to school in upstate New York, uh, spent my, for some reason, I grew up in Louisiana, I, I read too much Jack London, I had this romantic vision of Alaska, and all I wanted to do was live there more than anything in the entire world, so um, went up um, in, right after college, um, Brought my girlfriend up. We lived there for six years, had just the time of our lives. Both got our master's degrees, but um, largely fed a climbing and skiing addiction. Um, in my 30s, went back, joined the family business, which was a, we manufactured, we printed um, fabric and made decorative textiles, basically, for the home, stuff your mom or wife would buy. Um, in 01, experienced our first downturn uh and was caught off guard. Um, and it's completely our fault, but the uh, CFO was playing games and uh, we didn't catch it, but the bank did. Uh, bank put us in the workout and, um, and it was just a shock to the system. And uh, my joke is it took me three years to pull off a six month turnaround because I had no idea what the heck I was doing. And, you know, they don't teach any of this in school. And um, I got through that, everything was fantastic. And, um, I thought, well, I'll never deal with another turnaround again. Uh, went on vacation, Hurricane Katrina rolled in, wiped out the neighborhood, the business, scattered the employees, the whole thing. Spent another year rebuilding everything, exited, basically broke. Um, and at that point, I was two things. One, I was a bit intrigued because I got my ass kicked and I just had a grudge and I kind of wanted to like stay there and figure out the, the insolvency game and not be a victim of the insolvency game. Um, and then the other thing is no one would hire a failed entrepreneur. So I didn't have any good options. So um, I hung a shingle and uh, started doing turnaround work, uh, started with friends, businesses, and then I uh, got serious about it. Started doing work with banks, got serious in 08. So it's been uh, 13 years. Um, and, and, you know, that's, uh, let's see the, 
you know, smallest is probably 5 million in revenues. Biggest was 300 million uh, spread over eight factories in seven countries. You know, so a fair bit of complexity um, and, and then some really simple ones. But it's, um, it's my life's work. I absolutely love what I do. Um, I get it. It's just a complete blast. If I could just do this till the day I die, I'd be the happiest guy going. Um, and then the book was really um, wh- what I wish I had known 20 years ago before we got in our first workout. And, um, and I learned everything the hard way. So you mentioned the insolvency game and figuring that out because you, you had kind of a grudge against it. Um, I think hearing you kind of lay the groundwork about what the insolvency game is, the different types of insolvency, and then um, kind of just walking through a general turnaround process would be a good framework to start. Um, you know, a general turnaround process should start six months before there's trouble. Um, but it usually starts when they realize they can't make payroll on Friday or the bank sees and, and it's more of a crisis, which is usually driven by some form of delusion and denial, you know, because uh, entrepreneurs have this incredible quality of getting uh, where they got by just gritting their teeth, not listening to common sense and the naysayers and just banging their head against the wall forever which works. It, it, it's like the entrepreneur's greatest tool possible until it's not. When they're, when they're in true, true denial of reality, uh, then it's working against them. And it gets to the point where the customer see it, the vendor see it, the employee see it, and the bank sees it, and the entrepreneur doesn't. And the entrepreneur is still just trying harder um, and not, not dealing with reality. So, you know, once, the, um, once reality hits, um, there's two turnarounds, uh, income statement uh, and balance sheet turnarounds. Both first step is control cash. Seconds control the lender. Um, the only folks that can really put you out of business is basically your bank, the IRS, and other regulators. You know, make sure you're clean with all of them. And then you got to go diagnose. Like, okay, we're going to live for this week. Where, where's the problem? Uh, how do we address it? And how do we get after it? And how do we generate cash? Because once you're out of cash, either you're done or it, the leverage swings so dramatically that um, you're done. Uh, <laughs> cash is king and cash is uh, your oxygen, your blood flow. And then, you know, and, and then eventually you get that under control and then you just go fix what's broken. And it's most turnarounds are the entrepreneur's Achilles heel. You get a uh, a CEO who's an engineer who forgot about sales. You get a CEO who's a salesperson who forgot about accounting. You get an accountant who forgot about quality products or, you know, production or something. And it, it's usually their Achilles heel and uh, maybe 30% of the business is screwed up. 70% works. You go fix that. And, um, you know, and, and then you kind of uh, give them a good plan and push them on their way and hope they, uh, hope they can stay out of the ditch going forward. Jeff, you mentioned that you should be working on a turnaround six months ahead of time, but normally it's when you can't make payroll. Um, what are some of the signs that either income statement wise or balance sheet wise that should immediately as a business owner should tip you off that, hey, like something's not right here or, or, or elsewhere if it's not quantitative in nature? No, it's completely quantitative and it's easy to see. It's, you know, sales start dropping and um, don't make an excuse for that. Um, 
the gross margin is, is the bigger one. Uh, gross margin starts dwindling. Um, SG&A goes up. Um, you know, you'll, you'll see it on the income statement. You'll see, certainly see it in the balance sheet. You start depleting um, value in cash. And if you're tracking your cash flow, nope, they don't teach you this in school, the 13-week cash flow forecast, but it's the best tool in the world for running a business. And, um, you know, if you got that, you'll see it clearly. And um, it, boy, all the signs are obvious. I've never, you know, unless there's like, oh, the factory burned last night. Um, other than that, it's all, it, you, you can see it all in advance. Uh, it's just, you know, entrepreneurs are hopeful people. And um, that's the only reason they're entrepreneurs. And that's the only reason we don't live in caves is because somebody, you know, was overly optimistic about something. Um, so I get it. It's just um, most times that's it. That's an asset. Sometimes that trade is a liability. Is um, one of those two types of uh, insolvency or turnaround situations, so either income statement turnaround or balance sheet turnaround, is one of those easier to manage or get out of? So I'll give a definition. The balance sheet is when you've got a healthy underlying company, but just way too much debt. Um, Whereas the income statement turnaround is you're no longer producing profits, you're no longer producing cash, and that's your issue. Often, uh, I'm going to say 70-80% of the time, it's both. Um, balance sheet is probably easier to fix because you don't have to fix wow. the company. You just got to go to the creditors and say, guys, we got to reshuffle the deck here um, because I have a good underlying business, and let's just make sure that it can, it, it can service the debt properly. Whereas the income statement... You got to go fix the business, and sometimes that's you know really hard. Sometimes it's impossible. Right. So on the let's start with the uh, the credit side. What's your first step when you believe and and maybe the numbers bear it out that okay we've got a good underlying business but like we just geared this thing thing too much or we just you know that we took on some onerous terms like what's your first step what do you, how do you negotiate that. First, more than anything is, um, you know, lots of forecasting and kind of seeing where you're going. Uh, ultimately, you're going to go to the creditors and say, you know, we can afford this, this, this amount of debt service monthly based on where the company's going. Um, so maybe we take the existing debt and just do a stretch out and you're not doing a haircut, but we're just paying you less over a longer period of time. Or maybe it's just truly unsustainable. Um, now, of course, you have the debt stack, the banks at the top, you know, uh, shareholder loans, something like that would be at the bottom. And, the, you know, the bank's going to want all the cutting and stretching to be done beneath them. Uh, but, you know, if you, let's say you have three layers. You totally, you know, the third layer, you might just put on the freeze. Like, guys, y'all aren't getting paid for a long time. Sorry about that. Uh, second one might be, you know, a haircut and a stretch. And then you go to the bank and say, you know, these guys just gave it the altar. So we really need your help to make the whole thing work. And obviously everybody's contingent upon everybody else. And, and, and then go ask your favor for the bank. Now the bank, you know, they report to shareholders. They've got my deposits. Um, they're very reticent to, to cut any deals, but they're, you know, they're also real realist and, uh, they're not going to let, uh, uh, you know, they're not going to lose it all trying to be greedy that, you know, they'll work with you if it's a good plan and, and you give them, you, you give them enough reasons to work with you. One of the, um, well, okay. So first off, a couple of things about 
some of the things you just said. Um, does anything like if you if you had to restructure or reshuffle the debt, um, does anything happen in terms of like will your future interest rates be higher because of that? Because like you're you've been known to you know have to not default on the debt but restructure it. Uh, perhaps. Okay. But not necessarily. Not and, you, you know, obviously it's what you negotiate and, um, you know, what happens beyond that negotiation period, who knows? Yeah. And then um, in the book and just now as well, you, you talk about 13 week forecasts are not something that they teach you in, uh, in business school. Um, it, it's something that I saw uh, in my two years at Alvarez Marcel, but um, haven't done since. And I do corporate finance now. Do you, do you think that um, every business, whether they're in a turnaround situation or not, should be utilizing a 13-week cash flow forecast? I do, completely. So I'm involved in several businesses. My partner has 78 factories, and um, every one of them every day does a cash flow forecast and a borrowing base um, every day. Yeah, you know, weekly cash flow forecast, daily borrowing base with uh, headroom. Uh, you know, whether it's healthy or not, but it's just, that's, that's where you see it, right? Because everything else is kind of backwards looking. I would say for, for those in the audience that maybe, uh, one, haven't, haven't read the book, but also just want a little bit more technical knowledge. Can you walk through what's involved in that 13 and what you typically do on a 13 week cash flow forecast? Yeah. And I should probably even take a step back and it's, you know, to go way back to accounting, it's, uh, cash accounting versus accrual-based accounting. And what's interesting is some of the best trained accountants don't understand cash flow forecasting at all because their brain since like high school uh, accounting, you know, they've just latched onto accrual and that's the way the world's run. Um, so you have to rewire the brain a bit. Um, but ultimately, you know, it's like a, um, a, you know, somebody running a lemonade stand or, or any, you know, Middle Eastern merchant at, at, at the um, bazaar would know it's cash in your pocket comes in, it goes out. When it's empty, you're at, you're in trouble and you've got to generate some more. But that's really it. It's um, you know how, and then you've got the cash um, the cash conversion cycle. So um, I've got to go buy some product, um, and I've got payment. Let's say I got to go pay pay cash for your product. Then I've got to process it. Then I've got to sell it. Then I've got to collect on those invoices. That might be ninety days exposure on my cash. So if I'm a um, ten million dollar a year business, uh, I've got ninety days exposure. That's two and a half million in revenue. That's just basically out. That's the working capital I need. If I can get payment terms from my vendors at 30 days, now I just picked up an extra 30 days of cash. If I can get my customers to pay faster, I just picked up some more that way. If I can process and ship faster, I, I pick up days that way. And basically, you're just looking at days of cash exposure, either positive or negative. Um, and, and what you're really doing, once you really get a grip on it, you realize that you're working off of your balance sheet and you're also working off the balance sheet of all your vendors and all your customers. And as you, as you pull in uh, receivables sooner, you're basically pulling off of their balance sheet onto yours. When you give more credit to your customers, you're basically pulling off your balance sheet and giving to them. And, and it's making that flex that's sort of a normal everyday thing. And then you get in a turnaround situation where you need cash and you got to go ask for favors. This is essentially what you're doing is saying, guys, 
y'all have a much, we're, we're in trouble at the moment. Y'all need to lend us some of the strength of your balance sheet to help us through this, uh, this period. Are there, uh, are there financial instruments or credit lines that you will try and put in place to extend, um, sort of extend that, that side of the, like for inventory, for example, um, you've got you know, typically 30 days for your suppliers, sometimes 60 days, um, even 90 if they're, if they're huge suppliers, but like, have you ever put any of those financial instruments into place to kind of lengthen that part of it out and then try and collect cash faster from, from customers? Um, like, like how do you typically, when you're consulting, how do you, what, do you, what are the levers that you typically try and pull? And, and you might've been asking, you know, well, so normally they've got an ABL revolver, so they're already borrowing against their receivables and inventory, um, which some, you know, many of your listeners may understand, but basically, you know, as you buy inventory, maybe you can borrow 50 cents against that. Uh, so you bring in 10,000 of inventory, the bank will loan you 5,000 based on that inventory. Then you convert that inventory into a shipment, you give the 5,000 back, but now they're it, now you've got a, my numbers aren't all adding up because of, you know, margin spread, but you've got a $10,000 invoice. Now they're going to give you 8,500 8, against that until you collect. So, you know, and, and those are designed to help businesses go up and down in sales um, and, and afford, you know, flex through the cash cycle. And it works fabulously, um, you know, but when that's maxed out and you need more cash, then, you know, then it's where do you go? Because that collateral is already tapped out. You, you know, you've got plant property and equipment. You can go borrow against that. You've got uh, crazy MCA loans at 40%. Um, you know, you can go get like ghetto uh, financing and garbage financing to get yourself through, you know, which is advisable. If you got to do it, you got to do it. Um, you know, it's that or equity. And uh, anybody steps in when you're that weak and they step in an equity, if they're not your very friendly uncle, they're going to want uh, either, uh, you know, majority control or quite a bit of control. Uh, and, yeah. you know, and, and I've done, if you guys, you know, read through the book, you know, sometimes you just do ridiculous stuff. You do, you know, like, you know, 100% a, a day interest, uh, whatever. If it keeps you alive, do it. You just got to, you know, you got to get through. Sometimes you need a week and you'll do anything for that week because, you know, Walmart's going to pay you at the end of the week and you just got to get there. Jeff, I, I know I've said this to you a few times already, but I think one reason I loved your book so much is just because of the awesome, like true stories you share in there. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to hear you share some of the, um, or maybe, maybe one of each most challenging, successful income statement turnaround uh, that you you've taken part of and, and the same for a balance sheet turnaround. And, and maybe it's the same story because, because those are often one and the same. Um, I'm sure I could come up with a difference. So income statement, you know, I can think of a couple who just like tanked dramatically, which, which would be illustrative. Um, there was an aerospace company that went from 46 million to 6 million in like five years, which wasn't that, it's, it's like semi-dramatic, you know, but you can imagine the problems that causes, right? <laughs> you got a debt structure built on the 45 and, uh, and now you're at six. Um, had another one in 09 in Detroit that dropped 90% in nine months. 
Um, you know, that was just complete hair on fire. And the owner was leaving. He had, he, he was filthy rich. Um, he didn't need the money or the business, but he wanted it. Um, it was sort of a hobby for him. And uh, he had cancer and he was go- leaving for three months. And he literally just gave me the keys and said, you know, I'll see you in three months. Let me know how it works out. And um, <laughs> that was that was great. It was just, you know, the biggest firefight, street fight ever. But um, but we pulled it off. We got profitable in two months. And um, and then he came back and um, and he was thrilled. And then we kind of co-ran it for about three months. And um, by about month six, he didn't say it, but he pretty much did. Like, I want to pretend this didn't happen. I want to pretend I didn't meet you. I really just want to run my 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 leaned out profitable company all by myself. Uh, and that was it. So, um, and, and most of them do that, you know, they just want to pretend this didn't happen and they love their new company because it's profitable and giving them what they want. And, um, uh, that that's a natural cycle balance sheet. There was, um, I worked on a, uh, the, uh, I don't know if it's the largest, a large builder of planetariums around the world that had, um, it was a small business, but it just had insane amounts of debt. Uh, but it was marginally profitable. And that one was just all about debt restructuring, and um, w- which was largely from their biggest vendor. Um, you know, and those are not as, um, as interesting because they're really just debt negotiations. And, you know, you can, at the end of the day, if you really wanted to renegotiate debt, you just stop paying. And um, they scream and yell and threaten and do everything else. But it forces them to the table and um, many lenders won't talk to you if you're paying because don't bother the guy he's paying every month. <laughs> I don't know where the hell he's getting the money, but he is. So just, you know, shush about it. But once you stop paying, then they have to come to the table and, and talk through it with you. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I say we start at the balance sheet negotiation turnaround um, but, and work backwards to the income statement case studies, but we got to dig into these. So let's start with the renegotiation of the debt. What was the, like, what was the setting kind of, what was the background? um, And then what was the first sort of shot in the negotiations? How did it play out? That one, which is even more interesting, that one, um, the debt was owed to an enormous, which, you know, household name, Japanese company. Um, And my experience negotiating with Japanese outside of Japan is, you know, some, some cultural quirks and stuff, but it, it you know, it's, it's normal-ish. My experience negotiating with Japanese in Japan is they just never really give you an answer ever. And um, it went from, we stopped paying them um, and we couldn't get a response. And then uh, we said, you know, here's our plan and we couldn't get a response. And then we said, you know, we, we've got to move ahead with this plan which is selling your, your consignment inventory at, you know, a deep, deep discount because we really need the cash, which would be terribly offensive to them. Um, and I thought that would get their attention and never got their attention. We ended up selling, liquidating their inventory at, at pennies and then keeping the cash and, and using it as working capital. I'm trying to think if they ever responded. <laughs> but whatever, we pulled it off and uh, the, the, the company is still around today and, and they're still a uh, supplier. That's wild. So from an income uh, perspective, the first two that you mentioned that dropped, you know, whatever it was, 90%, 90, 80, 90%. How do you go in and lean out the company 
and turn it around to a profitable enterprise in six months when it drops that much? Like, what are the steps that you typically take? And Jeff, I'm going to be disappointed if you don't talk about sacrificial lambs here. Okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll get to that. So um, that one was, we got a little bit lucky in that, um, you know, they hit the bottom and they sort of bounce, started bouncing back. That was in 09. So, um, you know, we just cut everything to the bone, went and begged the customers, um, and it kind of worked out. There was a whole bunch of drama just with people. You know, the other one, the aerospace company that went from 45 to 6, they were they went 45 to 10, and then they greatly upset their biggest customer who pulled out. And um, I went to them and I said, you know, well, I just got called in. Here's the deal. And um, th there's only two possible ways this goes. Either we close up and you lose a vendor, but, you know, you've kind of cut us out already. So, you, you know, you're, you've accepted that outcome. But it'd be a damn shame because they've been around for 30 years and they've been a good supplier and the two people who greatly offended you are no longer here one left the other one i just fired today um and um you know you do have the chance to just rebuild these people and let them get back to where they used to be and you, you've got a great supplier who's done well for 30 years and you know and, and here's all the attributes but who am i you know i just got called in here today i don't make these decisions y'all do so um let me know. Um, I got to know by the end of the week, am I just going to lay everybody off or are we going to start getting orders from you? Um, I really hope it's the latter. And then, you know, zip my mouth and just sat there in the pain silence. And uh, they gave us orders. They dribbled them like you bastards. All right, here's an order. Um, and then they just grew and, you know, and then we earned our credibility and there was one other person they wanted gone. So we got rid of him and, um, and you know, and then they were happy and we started performing and just built our way out. But you know, it was pretty much that. And and often it's like, you know, going and tackling the biggest customer and saying, you know, we're, we're not playing games here. You have, you have all the control. I am groveling. Um, and I'm really hoping it works. Yeah. So obviously on the personnel side, there's probably some cutting involved um, just to survive the, the lean months. But uh, from like an inventory perspective, if you're just way heavy on the inventory side what are some things that you can do to just really like you know turn the ship around really quickly just to lean that part of the operation up um so a bunch of things i'm going to go off the top of my head you know you can uh push inventory out to your customers faster either on consignment or with discounts you can often call vendors and say listen we overbought will y'all take some back with the restocking fee and they'll often do it for 20 percent restocking fee and be happy um, you know, you're, um, there's four categories and I won't go through them all, but, um, you know, then you've got some like junk that just is really old and slow moving. You can just scrap that out. You've got other stuff that, um, you know, maybe you can modify or change, you know, um, we one time, uh, made, uh, flagpoles out of broom handles, um, you know, a, a, another example of that is like you just, you know, you've got a bunch of lamps, you bring in new lampshades and, uh, you know, better color lampshades and you salvage your inventory that way kind of thing. You know, um, obviously discounting, which I mentioned, I, I think, you know, that that's largely it. Uh, you know, and, and then the problem is if you're borrowing against your inventory, um, 
that'll reduce your borrowing base. And sometimes you're like, I just sold a whole bunch of stuff for, you know, 10 grand. I'm like, great. But the bank can lend you 13 grand on it. So you're three in the hole. So you got to, you know, keep your bank involved. And um, sometimes they will, sometimes they won't uh, work with you on that. So Jeff, when I, when I think about the income statement and I think about the different levers you can pull to mm-hmm. increase profitability, you obviously got sales and then you've got operating expenses or you got cost of goods sold and you got operating expenses. There's different ways to cut cost of goods sold. Might be tough depending on like the market that you're buying goods in, like if commodity prices are just rising. Um, with operating expenses, obviously a big lever there is layoffs because payroll is probably going to be your biggest expense. The one that's like really interesting to me and I, my guess is that it's the hardest to impact would be sales. So I want to, I want to hear like, if you agree that that's typically the, the hardest impact, um, because it seems like you, you'd have to come in as an outside party, um, not necessarily a sp- sales specialist and totally transform a culture. Um, so just interested to hear your thoughts on that and um, kind of how you actually drive sales in a, in a culture that's probably pretty downtrodden. The, um, so the easiest part, sales might be the easiest thing to increase if you count price increases. Mm. Um, you know, you want an extra 10% sales raise your price is 10%. And everybody can, every company I've ever gone to says they can't and, and we do and it works. So <laughs> that's kind of the easy one. And then actually increasing like sales orders. It's all about your sales cycle. You know, if you're, um, uh, what do you push it? You know, so, some you know, if you got salespeople out on the road, uh, you know, pushing frozen steaks, um, that's pretty easy. You know, you you can make an impact in a week if you're pushing a um, if you got a pharmaceutical um, factory or a, you know aerospace or something where you have to go through two years of qualifications. It just whatever I do today, I'm two years away from having being able to ship products. So you just can't impact it there. Maybe in those you can get uh, transfers. You can convince the buyer to just up your volume and, and take a little bit more stuff like that, you know. But and then if you've got, let's say, you got a hundred people in trucks uh, loaded up, you know, the people who every once in a while find you and they say, "Oh yeah, I deliver to the restaurants around here, and I've got some extra steaks." You know, if you got those guys, um, you. So I, I had a sales manager one time. First day, she. Um, held a sales contest, whoever uh, gets like the most new order activity and um, gets um, gets cash. So, you know, they ran the, the, the sales event and somebody walked home with a hundred dollar bill or something. Uh, the next day it was uh, some other thing we were trying to drive and it was uh, recognition, like, a, you know, the president's parking space for a week or something. And um like it's, it's cute, but you know, where the hell are you going with that? Cause you're not going to keep doing these things over and over and you're going to run out of ideas. So I asked her and she goes, Oh, it's pretty simple. She said, you know, I'm not a psychologist. So now I know who's motivated by money, who's motivated by recognition and the others, I don't give a shit because uh, I know I can't motivate them and they're too complex and we just need to turn them over. Um, so, you know, you got a hundred people out selling frozen steaks, you motivate the hell out of them uh, one way, you do it the other, you fire the bottom 10% and um, and you just ride herd on them like a high school football coach. Um, you know, you can, if you got a, people going out every day trying to push product off their truck, 
and you hit them like a high school football coach, you can bump sales 20% a week. Yeah. Um, I love, I love in the book where you talk about crisis leadership and it, obviously the famous quote about good leaders, never let a cri- a good crisis go to waste. Right. Uh, I, I'd love to hear some examples of a leader that you've seen use a turnaround for good and um, really take advantage of a bad situation. And then maybe an example of a leader that was in a bad situation that handled, handled it terribly. Um, well, you know, so a lot of, if you read biographies, you know, a lot of mega people, you know, uh, through the ages had a turnaround at some point and, and it really remade them. Um, I can't cite anybody offhand, but you know, you, you a Carnegie, a Mellon, a, a Jobs, right? He had to get Steve had to get fired and shamed, and then fail at next to come back and and um, you know, so a lot of them. I think it, it's such a shitty, awful experience to go through, um, and I went through it about as bad as anybody could. That it just, I think, it'll break you, or or it'll change you and put a chip on your shoulder, and you'll end up going to places you've never been before. So, you know, as far, hell, I, I know, you know, if you're really clever, you can, you really use insolvency to your advantage. I know a guy who um, saw it coming, lined it up, kept his chauffeur driven um, Mercedes through the bankruptcy because he convinced the court that the hour um, commute each morning and, and the hour back was critical time. And, uh, and the court didn't want to want him to be unproductive for two hours. Every day. Um, you know, and, and then he used that to just drive all the costs out, drive the bad actors out and completely refresh his company and, you know, tidy up the balance sheet. So if you're really clever, like that guy, you can totally use it. The problem is you, you have to be, you have to have gone through the cycle, right? You have to see it coming and know what to do with it most entrepreneurs are just caught off guard and they don't know what the hell to do with it. Um, and there's lots of, um, you know, regrettably, there's lots of stories where people didn't recover and, um, you know, and then there's lots of just tragedy. Um, for some reason, George Bush and Katrina keeps jumping in my mind. He, I think it was like seven days later, he flew over like 20,000 feet and looked out the window. But I always remember in, um, Obviously, I wasn't there, but I think it was Hurricane Betsy in the 60s. Like that night, President Johnson was walking around with a flashlight shining in his face, just going up to people. I'm your president. I'm here. How can I help you? Wading through the water. You know, and that's that's leadership. Uh, flying mm-hmm. over seven days later when people are shooting each other is, you know, and, and Bush paid the price for that. Clearly, I don't have yeah. to, to pile on here. Um, I think that's a, that's a good transition into, uh, some business killers that you listen. I think, uh, like the law of inversion business killers are a great thing to study because it tells you exactly what not to do. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the business killers related to this is management transition. And you mentioned how, uh, management transition is a lot of times just a, an opportunity for bad things to happen. Um, for a lot of different reasons. So um, a lot of our listeners, Benton included, um, are either new owners or, you know, desire to buy a small business. How can a new, uh, probably first time operator go in and um, ensure a good management transition in your experience? And we're probably talking a, uh, we're such a difference. If you're going into a healthy company, it's don't screw anything up. 
Um, and if you're going to a broken company, it's, you, you know, they need radical change that day. So clearly those two are a lot different. Also, let me bounce back to your comment about never let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah. Um, they're, you know, they're going back to, you know, you step in first day of a turnaround, you, you, there has to be dramatic change. You can't impact the whole organization right away. You know, I can go sit in the counting, um, but I can't sit in the counting and production and sales. Um, so it's actually, it surprised me when I was training for the certification, it's, it's in the manuals um, and they test you on the um, sacrificial lamb that, um, you know, first of all, some cuts need to be made. You get any group of a hundred, somebody's ranked hundred, somebody's ranked bottom. Somebody's always a number one jackass and they're not hard to find. And everybody hates them and everybody, you know, like the bottom, the top 30, 40% always resent the bottom 10%. And, um, and, and they know those folks are holding them down. So when you go in and, and you, you got to take out 10% of the people and you take out the, the bottom 10% and you take out one or two jackasses, everybody else is really kind of cheers for you. And you say, I don't know what kind of culture put up with that kind of treatment, but uh, it ain't me and it ain't us going forward. And things are going to change and we're going to, you know, listen, y'all were raised better. Y'all were raised to show up and put a hard day of work in and you were raised to do right. And you haven't been, and uh, your parents would be embarrassed. And quite frankly, if you went home, if, if I brought your kids in here and they saw how you're working, you'd be embarrassed. Uh, so, you know, what? we're all going to step it up. We're going to pretend this is real, that we're playing for keeps, that this is important to you, your community and your family. And we're just going to kick some ass from here. And if somebody doesn't like it, they can leave. Because there's plenty of companies that'll put up with that, but no longer will we put up with that. And you know, something like that really changes the culture pretty quick. It's yeah, they got to get the fact there's a new sheriff in town. You know, it sounds a bit blowhardish and dicky, but um, but you got to get the point across. You just do, and the faster you do it, and the, the faster and canning people, shutting down something, doing something big and physical and dramatic, uh, really gets the point across. Um, so if, you know, for a search funder going in uh, and taking over an entrepreneur's company that's nice and healthy. That is, um, I don't even know if I could give good advice because it's a little bit of don't screw it up and a little bit of you got to put your own mark on and then start filling those shoes and get people to respect you. Um, it's tough. Transitions though are, you know, I've had, I had a headhunter say, and I, I, now I just ask headhunters and they're all like, yeah, it's about right. Um, the odds of hiring a new president or a general manager to run a small business, the odds of getting the right person are about 40%, which means you got, you know, 60%, two thirds chances of screwing that up. And, um, you know, everybody's seen lots of, you know, small businesses in their neighborhood or that they know through family that, um, you know, just go through a succession of uh, presidents or general managers and don't really go anywhere. And that's, Actually, I'm working on one right now. The Fabio CEO, his wife got sick. He did the right thing and went home and, and mended her through cancer. The CEO who came in in the middle uh, screwed up the whole business, uh, screwed up all the contracts. This, this guy's wife fortunately got healthy. He's back in the seat. Um, and now they're trying to figure out where to go from there. But yeah, the transitions are um, terribly risky. Yeah, that, that, that aligns with um, what several of our search fund and, and entrepreneurs <laughs> said on our podcast, uh, stepping into healthy business, rule number one is just do no harm. 
a few of the other business killers that I wanted to hit on and, and maybe just, you know, double click into a tiny bit is um, one of them was failure to adapt, uh, which makes sense. I mean, it's, it's the Darwinism. Um, mm-hmm. What, what makes a business adaptable or, or if you're walking into a turnaround situation, what kind of levers are you pulling or, or what things are you instituting to try to make a business more adaptable? Aren't we figure out, you know, especially uh, people often come to me with a, um, uh, people often come to me with a startup that hasn't turned profitable. And, um, you know, my analogy, it's like, okay, for five years, you've been, you know, sailing in a sea of losses and you've never seen land ever in five years, but now you want me to navigate you safely and properly to land. I have no freaking idea where land is. Like you don't even have product market fit. Where, where am I supposed to go here? But if I take over a hundred-year-old company that fell apart in the last five, you know, I look back like, okay, we used to be profitable. What were we doing then? You know, maybe we had a lot more sales. Maybe, you know, and then you like, okay, well, what happened to the sales? Oh, they they don't like us anymore. Well, why not? Or um, you know, they going back to the adaptability. You know, the market changed, and uh, and and we didn't engineer our way into the change. But it's really just sort of down, 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 root cause. And then, you know, let's say it's adapting and it's, we know it now it's like, okay, well, how do we make that leap? You know, can we afford the engineering? How long is the engineering going to take? Is the market really there? Um, You know, and it's a lot of conversations with customers and everything and then forecasting and because we don't have any money, um, you know, and it's, uh, what can we do? You know, can we, can we get part of the way there and at least survive and then regain our strength and then try to finish the second half of the journey? Is it just too far? And we probably need to just sell to a strategic and, and get folded in. Um, that, you know, it, again, it's, it's all comes down to cash forecasting because that's the constraint and the turnaround. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, another business killer is undercapitalization. Uh, mm-hmm. I hear the term thrown around a lot and I'm in finance. So uh, a little bit embarrassed to not really be able to explain this clearly, but I'm um, just talking about like a strong balance sheet and how uh, that'll allow you to get through the worst storms in business. What are you looking for to signal a strong balance sheet besides a relatively large cash position? Or is that it? Um, well, you know, a- assets over liabilities. Um, and then the next would be, I'm just going down a level. So cash, assets over liabilities, G- good assets over all liabilities, good assets over the liabilities we want to take seriously. Um, and you just kind of work your way down from there. You know, the undercapitalized, you know, a lot of companies go in like, I, I worked on this trucking company and, um, the banks that were ready to liquidate him, and um, and he was offended, and um, but but scared, and uh, he said, "I don't see what the big deal is. It's February. We never have cash in February. I haven't had cash in the last twenty Februarys. My father before me never had cash in February for twenty years before that." And um, I said, "You know, Bill, this is a fixable problem. <laughs> like you don't have to just suffer through February forever." Um, but a lot of businesses are like that because they never started off with enough cash and they start in a position where they've always been starved and they don't know any better. Um, and I don't know if y'all have ever been in a business plan competition or judged them. My experience is they never ask for enough capital because they're like, Oh God, I, 
don't want to ask for a million and a half. Let's just ask for a million and we'll try to figure out how to skate through. Um, so I think it usually starts at the beginning, you know, and obviously uh, an entrepreneur, you know, scraping with friends and family, I, I get it. You know, they're sort of undercapitalized on purpose because that's all they could get. And um, did, I don't know if that answered the question. Where, no, it does. Where and honestly, as you're saying it, it's, it's kind of helpful for me just thinking about, like, I want to buy a business and um, it's kind of a helpful reminder to me to, um, like, if I have a certain range of, of business that I can buy, um, I need to make sure that I have enough cash to, you know, fund working capital and, and a buffer above that. Um, obviously the, the opposite side of this puzzle is being over levered. Um, a lot of these, a lot of these small businesses and, and search fund deal self self-funded search deals are 80 to 90% SBA debt. Um, how, how do you generally feel about, um, buying a business with 89, 80, 90% debt? Uh, I think if, if I could get a business with a hundred percent debt, I'm quite happy. Which, by the way, is, is personally guaranteed. Yeah, yeah, that part I hate. Okay, so so I so I want to dig into that part because I see all of these these Twitter folks uh, touting the ninety five percent SBA debt structure, five percent seller note. I don't have any money in the in, in the game. Um, and maybe I'm making that up. Maybe that's a little bit egregious, but like there's a serious PG attached to that that should be taken very seriously. Uh, so like, what's your opinion? Have you seen things go south? I have been a hundred staunch, a hundred percent opposed to SBA loans for that reason. Although I'm softening and maybe I'm 95% opposed now. Okay. Um, <clears throat> because I've lived through my own, personal guarantee with a bank. And let, let me start there. So, you know, a, a bank personal guarantee um, hurts, it's awful. And if you've never been through it before, they just use it to psychological torture. Um, because every time you want to do something, they just hold that thing over you. You're picturing something worse than bankruptcy. You're picturing li li living under a tree with your kids and your spouse. And, um, and, and they get you to put all your money in so they don't exercise the PG. They get you to reduce your, your pay. They get you to do all this crazy stuff because you're so scared to death of it. And then they'll always, and I, I, clearly I'm, I'm making a gross generalization. This is my experience with my bank when I had a PG. It was always like, oh, and we'll take care of you at the end, but you just got to do this. And you just, and you know, and at the end of the day, I did every freaking thing and they never gave me any damn relief. Um, so I had a bad attitude about PGs. Now, if you, so that, that's a bank. And, you know, now I've learned how to work with banks and PGs and I don't find it um, terribly intimidating. And I kind of know what it's used for and what a bank really wants. You know, if you can, oh, most bankers are uh, check the box. Sorry, we got to check the box on the PG. But, you know, if you can engage them in a conversation, like what do y'all really want? What do you, what are you trying to accomplish with the PG? And it's, you're trying to make sure I pay attention. Um, you're trying to make sure I don't run off. You're trying to make sure um, I, I don't siphon a bunch of money out of the company. You're um, that, um, what else? Um, did I don't do anything dumb? Oh, I, it, that when it, if it comes time to liquidate or work out that I don't fight you on it. I don't fight you on, on, on uh, foreclosure. I, I don't run up, you know, an extra couple hundred thousand dollars in legal bills with all these fights, because with the PG, they say, listen, Sands, do what we're asking, or we're going to whack you with this. 
So what you really want is you want my complete compliance and you want me to work all the way through. There's ways to accomplish that without a PG. I can, and I don't remember all the, all the names, but you know, you can pre-surrender, you can sign forms where you pre-surrender assets, where, where you, you know, default judgments and you can stack it up enough that um, you can make guarantees on yourself for action that I will do these things. And if not, I'll suffer terrible consequence. Um, that tactically it replaces a PG and it makes the PG not necessary, but very, very few will give it up because they like the emotional uh, psychological burden that it carries as well. Now the um, SBA, which none of these, um, you know, ha happy Twitter folks that uh, think it's a great deal think through is what happens when it goes bad? Who collects for the SBA? Well, it's Department of Treasury, the same guys that collect for the IRS. What powers do they have? Uh, every freaking power they've ever dreamed of, because everything they ever wanted, they asked Congress for and they got. Um, the most powerful collection agency in the entire world is the U.S. Treasury. They grab people off planes in foreign countries and, and jet them back home to stand trial. Um, there is, you know, and then you think you're going to avoid them in the U.S.? It's impossible. They'll, they'll lean your, your social security payments. They'll lean your taxes, tax refunds. They lock you up in every single way possible, and no one ever, ever gets in their way. And, you, and, and, you know, so what are you going to do? And, I, and I've tried bargaining with them, and it's, you know, it's like bargaining with the IRS. If you're truly, truly, truly empty and have nothing in your pockets, then they'll work out a, a six-year payment plan for, you know, pennies, and you, you'll finally be free after all of that. But they owe, it to the, they owe it to me as a U.S. taxpayer that they're not wasting my money on, on other people. Uh, you know, so I get it. It's fair. They also, as you can imagine, have prescribed amounts, right? Because you don't want to get an argument of, hey, listen, I need this much to survive. You can't take any more. And the government says, geez, I think you can survive on less and pay your debts. So they didn't want this arm wrestling. So they defined it, right? Like the government does so often. So there's a matrix of <clears throat> a family of four can, can have these expense, monthly allocated expenses, because we don't want you being homeless or in a poor house. We want you to, to get through this and still be a productive citizen. So a uh, family of four is allocated $54,000 a year in uh, annual expenses. So, you know, if you're a CEO, you're making 200 a year, you've got kids in dance class and in college, and, you know, you're, you're used to vacations and you got a couple cars and you get in trouble with the SBA and you have a bad attitude or you don't have a good plan, they can always say, you know what, you're right. We're just going to put you on the approved payment program. 100% of the money goes to them and then they allocate you back the 4,500 a month for your personal expenses. Mm. Yeah, but that's the kind of power you're dealing with. And, um, you know, 90, whatever, 99% of SBA loans work out just fine. But I get the privilege of watching the 1% and, uh, oh, it's horrible. Yeah, goodness gracious. Well, I know that SBA- I could talk, has, I could talk everybody out of being an entrepreneur if you let me. Yeah, well, uh, well, um, you're starting to scare me here. So let's, you know, we'll have to dial it back a little bit. But uh, I, I do not have an SBA loan. I don't have a PG on- uh, on anything like that, but um, I, I do know typically real estate; um, it, those types of bank loans have personal guarantees, which are easily attached to the uh, collateralized by the, the actual real asset. But for an operating company, 
just sorry to interrupt, real estate doesn't go to zero. A business can go to zero. Right, right. And if there's like a hard, tangible thing for them to kind of take back and at least get some of their collateral back, some of their principal back. But an operating business, that was going to be my question, is like, you know, if it's a small, small type of enterprise, they want a PG just to make you, like you said, pay attention. But at what size do they start to say, you know what, you're right, um, let's negotiate kind of around the edges so that in some case, like, in, in a downside case, we can get some of this money back. Like, at what size does that loan become not PGable, if you will? I guess non-recourse would be the technical technical term, but yeah, I don't, I I don't know the uh, the metrics. I, I just don't know. Yeah, so it's just it's it's negotiable. You just go in there and say, hey, look, like I, I'm just not going to take a PG. I can't, I can't, I can't do that. Uh, well, I think with the SBA, it's, you know, one or the other. They yeah, just, yeah, you either do it or you don't. A bank and, you know, like some banks will work with you. If you're, I, I've seen banks waive it if you're compelling and, and other ones are just, you know, sorry, it's on the form. It's, I got to check the box one way or the other. <clears throat> you know, but thinking about real estate, if I'm going to buy a million dollar piece of real estate and I can get 95% um, leverage on it. And my guess is, you know, worst case, I'll, I'll take a 30% loss on it. Okay, so um, I borrow 950. Worst case is I can sell it for 700. I owe, I owe the government 250. I can handle 250 um, spread out over time. You know, I, I can live with that. But a business, you know, especially if it's any kind of service business or not a super heavy asset business, you can go from a million to zero or it can go from a million to 150. And I don't want to carry that spread. Yeah, Jeff, um, one thing that, uh, you know, you don't ever hear about in college, like we said at the beginning of the conversation, uh, or likely in business school is like what really happens in a worst case scenario. Um, so I know you, you've lived through it um, personally, <laughs> seen many others. Um Let's just make up a case study. Um, 30 years old, you have a wife, you're both personally guaranteed uh, on, on a business. Uh, this, this, is not, this is not me. Um, <laughs> Actually, this was me at 35. So okay. Yeah, so um, let's, say, <laughs> let's say you have $200,000 in assets. Um, you're personally guaranteed, you know, the business, you, you borrowed 800,000. So, so you're personally guaranteed for the full amount of your assets, but not more than that. Um, you declare bankruptcy, uh, what happens? Um, and let me just introduce uh, equal and severable <clears throat> debt. So if you have three part, two partners and there's three of you, um, each of and you borrow 800,000 in there, it'll say equal and severable, which means that you owe 800, I owe 800, and um, Brenton owes 800. And if I'm not worth it, they're going to squeeze it out of you two. And if uh, me and Brenton aren't worth it, then you're just going to go squeeze Victor for the full 800. Um, and, um, you know, that's something else everybody misses. They're like, hold on, you know, so we're in for 900. That means my share is 300. That's where I'm maxed out. Now you're maxed out at nine. That's a bit of a prisoner's dilemma. It, it is. Now, the nice thing, if you're doing business, if your partner is a billionaire, you know they're always going to jump on him before that. You know, they're not going to waste your time jumping on you. <laughs> Um, and, um, God darn it. I forgot your question. Oh, so, so, so you go bankrupt. What happens? You know, oh, you're um, personally guaranteed above your net worth. Yeah. Well, you know, in a true bankruptcy, um, well, it used to be a straight to a seven. Now there's a 13, which is a workout. 
and then the um, <clears throat> where you basically come up with a payment plan, you and and it is you fully expose everything under penalty of perjury and worse. Um, here's everything I own. Here's my job. Here's my income. And uh, and you know the government has calculations that show what kind of debt you can service out of that. <clears throat> so it really doesn't matter what your debt was. It's what you can reasonably service going forward. And, you know, and, and there's some like negotiation, like, oh, I think that's a little too high. Let's not look at my calculations are lower. Uh, but at some point you agree and the creditors all agree that this is good enough and we're going to find an exit. And that's how you get out of bankruptcy. There's not an agreement, either somebody's forced into it or it, it falls apart. And, um, and then you have to go deal with them outside of, you know, I filed because I found a bankruptcy lawyer, many, um, eight, nine out of 10 bankruptcy lawyers think bankruptcy is the solution to everything, um, including eczema. Um, but, you know, you can find one. If you find one, it's a litigator and a bankruptcy person. They realize that bankruptcy is one of many options and they can keep you out of court 90% of the time. So, you know, if I had to relive what I went through, I would have never filed. I, I, there's no reason I need to file. I just didn't understand it well enough. And, and essentially, you know, what I always tell people, we're restructuring the debt out of court. We can always go in. And what we're going to do, because we're going to be really clean and upfront about this, we're going to follow the exact procedure that bankruptcy applies so that everybody thinks it's fair. You can involve your lawyers. And um, if at any point somebody shoves us into bankruptcy, the judge isn't going to be upset because we've been following the rules all along and it's nice and clean. The only difference is, out of court, we're going to save about 300,000 legal expenses and some of just the crazy one-off uh, things that might happen to us. If we go in bankruptcy, the lawyers do well, their kids go to nice colleges and maybe something crazy happens. You know, I think it's in everybody's interest. Let's just work this out outside. And, you know, it's always an option. If you get uncomfortable, we can talk about going in. But for now, it's we're all going to do better if we stay out. So that's kind of the negotiation. And then again, it's all, um, this is what I got as transparent as you can be. Um, you know, cause even outside of bankruptcy, you've got to in court, you know, you're held. And, and if you lie, you're in a lot of trouble out, you know, once you lose your credibility, it's shot. So you just, you know, my opinion is you're just trying to get, somebody wants to say, if you got to eat a big pile of shit, get a big fork and just get after it. Um, you know, and that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to get on the other side of that big pile of shit so you can restart your life. So, you know, get through this. It is what it is and, and get to where you're, you know, you're rebuilding again, um, is my theory. So I don't want to sugarcoat it and make it sound, you know, less terrible than it is. But, um, what I think, what I think I took away from that was that even in worst case scenario, there's likely options and you may be able to work something out out of court that saves a lot of money and a lot of headache and heartache. Yep. And the U.S. has the best insolvency system in the world. And the entire program is built on, there's a term, uh, the, the honest but unfortunate have a chance to rebuild their life and get a second start. And that, you know, you think about it, that's like everything America is built around. And, um, and, and the bankruptcy and insolvency laws follow that. If you're a good person and you tried hard, we want Americans to keep trying hard. We want entrepreneurs not to be scared away. Um, and we want to make this tolerable for you. But, you know, that requires getting all your money. And if you 
come up and lay yourself bare very quickly. It can be a quick, painless process. <laughs> you know, if you fight it, um, I mean, think about what I just described. It's not so horrible. I went through like the worst way possible and it was, you know, I got through it. I've been, you know, um, but you know, some people take it too personally, like, oh, I failed in public. What's this mean? I'm never going to recover. I don't know what's happening. This is so scary for me. And I've seen multiple suicides from insolvency. I've seen a lot of divorces and breakups and ruined families and you know, and then God forbid somebody thinks like theft is a, a clever answer to all this. And, um, oh, it's, you know, but it's the same fact pattern. It's just, you know, are you interpreting it, in, you know, the most freaked out way or are you not? And I think the difference is largely either experience or guidance. You know, if you've been through it, it you've been through it. And if you have somebody like me who, who can guide you and keep you cool. Um, and listen, a lot of what I do is psychology work. Um, cause I got to convince somebody you're going to lose the house. You're going to lose the, this, that, and the other thing, but you're going to keep your head up. We're not going to get carried away. It's going to be fine because here's how it works. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to help you through this. Um, that, you know, that's what, that's what we're dealing with. It's, it, you know, it, it is what it is. It's how you want to interpret it. And, um, my thing is just, man, I just want to hit the bottom so I can push off real hard and get to the next phase. Yep. Um, well, Jeff, th this has been fantastic. We'll go ahead and wrap up in a second. Um, this has been one of my favorite conversations. So thanks for joining oh, cool. us. And I, I really, uh, I really did love your book. So, um, anyone who's listening, I, I think that you'd behoove, behoove yourself to, uh, read Jeff's book. It's, it's really great. Um, so just one question that we ask all of our guests, uh, what does doing business the right way mean to you? You know, if um, in my line of work, if I can go into a shitstorm, get completely splattered, and it's everything's a mess, everybody hates everybody, everybody's suing everybody, everybody's upset, and there's just carnage everywhere. If I can do that, get through that, and still have credibility, then you know that that's that's my level of success, and you know I guess that's doing business the right way. Um, you know, but in turnaround, it is a thousand percent about credibility. If, you know, once I lose that, I got absolutely nothing. Yeah. That sounds a bit like uh, Rudyard Kipling's If. Have you ever read that poem before? Uh, yeah, but I'm can't, I, I can't even get started remembering it, though. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I, I don't have it memorized. Go ahead. Just, no, yeah. No, thanks. Uh, yeah, I'll Google it real quick. But uh, yeah, if you can if you can keep your head uh about you as you're running through that big pile eating it with a big fork yeah you know you'll be a man my son is that how it goes yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, something like that yeah well jeff this has been a blast uh i would echo victor's thoughts uh this is actually giving me a lot of food for thought um as victor said i just bought a small business and so just kind of getting some gears going this i, I hope this will be a and i think this will be a very helpful conversation for a lot of our like the smb folks out there um on the PG side of things, on the, the debt instruments, just on, you know, the stresses involved in, in operating companies. So we appreciate you taking the time. This is awesome. You bet. And I would say, you know, if you look at for somebody in, in your position with a new business, you know, it's probably obvious to you, but I'll point it out. All, all the lessons, you turn them in reverse and it's how to build a really strong bulletproof company. Um, so, you know, that's something to keep in mind. And, um, 
before I sign off, uh, we're looking for deals. We like buying distressed businesses. Generally, revenue is 30 million and up. Prefer manufacturing, um, something asset heavy, and you know, we'll we'll take it any condition we can. Um, we've restarted a couple that have closed, but uh, now's not the time because uh, there's you know the world we're in the land of infinite bailouts. But at some point, it'll turn and. There will be challenge companies out there and keep me in mind because we are we're, we're quick. We'll do an LOI in a week and we can close in 30 days. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if you know of somebody that um, may could use Mr. Sands services, give him a shout. So Jeff at DorsetPartners.com. There you have it. Jeff, thanks so much. Thanks, Benton. Thanks a lot, Victor. Take care, guys. This is Benton here again. Thanks so much for listening to the Circle of Competence podcast. To find more episodes like this one, go to circleofcompetence.co. That's circleofcompetence.co to sign up for my weekly podcast emails, as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.